Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, December 22nd. Considering that it's three days before Christmas and members of Congress want to go home and there's a blizzard in half the country making them want to flee even faster, there's an incredible amount of high-stakes business being conducted in national politics right now. The full January 6th committee report is due out any minute. Tax accountants and politicians and others are coming or th- combing through two decades of Donald Trump's tax returns, which the House Ways and Means Committee finally got permission to release and already shows some shocking evasions of accountability by Trump. Congress is finishing the big so-called omnibus spending bill, all the government funding for the rest of the fiscal year through next September. And even as of yesterday, some of you heard Senator Gillibrand on this show, said she was still negotiating for at least one part of it. And last night, in a surprise visit, as you've all heard, Ukraine's President Zelensky addressed a joint session of Congress and argued for how Americans should view the $44 billion he's apparently about to get for the war in the new budget and more to come after that. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. Not charity, but an investment, argued President Zelensky. So on this Thursday morning before Christmas, day four of Hanukkah, an intense national weather day and national politics day, we welcome New York Times congressional reporter Luke Broadwater. Luke, thanks for some time on a day when you have many moving parts to cover. I know you're waiting for that January 6th committee report. You're like checking your inbox every minute. Welcome back to WNYC. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good morning. Luke, let me start on your most recent article in The Times. It's about something you're seeing in the January 6th committee deposition transcripts. They released that part of the final report yesterday as they wrap up their work. And your article is called A Common Answer to January 6th Panel Questions, the Fifth. That's obviously the fifth, taking the fifth, uh, don't have to testify so as not to incriminate myself. How common and by what kinds of people? Right. Well, so yesterday, uh, the committee started rolling out uh, the the written transcripts of their more than uh, 800 or uh, even 1,000 uh, depositions. Um, we're going to see hundreds more of these come out during the next week or so. Uh, but the first 34 they released had to do with people who uh, basically invoked the Fifth Amendment repeatedly time and time again, Uh, in some cases more than 100 times throughout the course of these interviews. Um, There are a lot of close allies of Donald Trump, people like Roger Stone, people like Alex Jones, uh, Donald Trump's fundraisers, uh, rally organizers. Um, It really runs the gamut of conservative activists like Charlie Kirk and, you know, uh, open racists like uh, Nick Fuentes. 
um, were invoking their rights against self-incrimination again and again. And the committee says this really stymied a lot of their work because if people will not answer the questions, um, they, it will block certain lines of the investigation. And the, the committee actually thinks they could have referred more people for criminal referrals to the Justice Department if they had gotten more answers. Uh, but these these transcripts did show some interesting things based on the questions the investigators were asking, because the investigators had obtained text messages and emails through subpoenas. So they were able to read certain text messages to uh, these non-cooperative witnesses, and you could glean uh, information about the investigation uh, from those questions. You just told me at least one thing that I didn't know, which is that Nick Fuentes, who people mostly first heard of because of that dinner with Trump, with Kanye West, and that he's a white supremacist and a Holocaust denier, um, that Nick Fuentes was a witness before the January 6th committee. In what context? Yeah, so uh, in, in the course of the investigation, uh, one of the various teams on, on the committee uh, got extremely interested in the role of right-wing extremism and how that motivated people to attack the Capitol. And Nick Fuentes was on Capitol grounds on January 6th with a bullhorn in his hand, uh, firing up uh, his his um, supporters. I think he calls them goipers. And uh, so they wanted to hear from him. And they, they, they brought him in. He invoked the Fifth Amendment time and time again. In fact, his... Uh, his lawyer was quite uh, pugnacious and, and openly sparred with the committee verbally, at one time accusing the committee of grandstanding. And one of the lawyers on the committee shot back, like, isn't it ironic that Nick Fuentes is accusing us of grandstanding? So, um, <laughs> but he didn't give them much information. You know, he believed, look, you can only invoke the Fifth Amendment if you believe your answer to the question could potentially incriminate you. And so the fact that they were doing this again and again was telling to the committee. It blocked the inquiry, but it did shine some light on how many people believe they had some criminal exposure due to January 6th. Did you say Fuentes, with his bullhorn on January 6th, called the crowd goipers? What does that mean? Uh, you, you know, I, I'm not super well versed in Nick Fuentes, but that, that's what he calls his his um, supporters um, they are, uh, th that's like a nickname for themselves. I, I'm not exact. I don't know enough about Nick Fuentes's world to, to explain, uh, the way he comes up with his, his nicknames, but we do know that Nick, uh, Fuentes is, you know, an openly racist that he does have a following among some young disinfected, uh, men who are angry and, um, and so the committee wanted to see what role he played. You know, look, other, you know, Alex Jones appeared before the committee. Yeah. He played an influential role. He was there on January 6th. Um, it came out during some of these transcripts that uh, the um, a very rich heiress who was a fan of Alex Jones had listened to his show and decided to donate three million dollars hmm. to put on the rallies before January 6th. Hmm. Uh, to bring all those people to Washington. So, you know, you might think of some of these people as just, you know, far right extremists, no one listens to them, but they do have influence. And they do have influence with some wealthy people who can organize things and make things happen. And that's what we saw with Alex Jones. 
Well, maybe if Trump is reelected in 24, he'll make Nick Fuentes the Homeland Security Secretary or something. So any American has a right to take the fifth, not to incriminate themselves, and juries aren't supposed to infer guilt from that. I hear what you just said about how many of these witnesses took the fifth for much more than things that could directly incriminate themselves. So there seemed to be some kind of organized stonewalling going on. But what can you glean as a journalist from the pattern of who has taken the fifth around what questions? Any information that you can kind of infer from that? Right. Well, I think you learn more from the questions than the answers. Um, you know, for instance, uh, Mike Roman, who is uh, was one of Donald Trump's uh, top employees on the campaign, it, it, it comes out in these um, in the questioning because of the emails and texts the committee obtained that he had uh, really organized the so-called fake elector plot and that he had directed his deputy to deliver documents related to the fake electors to Capitol Hill. And there's a text message from his deputy saying, you know, mission accomplished with a picture of himself like posing in front of the Capitol. Um, so you could see a direct connection there um, through the questions of the Trump campaign, the fake electors and delivering them to the Capitol to try to get uh, Donald Trump to remain in power on January 6th, despite having lost those states in question. Um, so you could you could um, glean information, but it was more from the questions than the answers. Uh, you know, these more than 30 people clearly believe they had some sort of criminal exposure or their lawyers believed if they answered these questions, it could open them up to maybe a Justice Department investigation. And so, um, you know, they took the fifth to all sorts of things like, for instance, um, do you believe in the peaceful transfer of power? Mike Flynn's asked that question, and he takes the fifth to it. Huh. Um, you know, Charlie Kirk takes the fifth on his age and his education, but he's willing to admit his hometown to the to the committee. So at times they were willing to answer a question here or there, but it was generally a legal stance that if we start talking about this, we could get ourselves in trouble, and it's better just to plead the fifth repeatedly. Luke Broadwater, we are told we'll have to jump if— the congressional, uh, the, I'm sorry, the January 6th committee report gets released. Uh, so, Nick, give us a little real time here. Are you checking your texts, checking your email? Is somebody going to call you right away when this happened? And this was supposed to happen yesterday, wasn't it? Why didn't it? Right. Um, so I've been covering this committee for 18 months, and everything always takes longer than anticipated. Uh, it's It's a large committee with a lot of decision makers on it and uh sometimes there's there's a lot of cooks uh in the kitchen <laughs> and it slows things down uh yeah yesterday was supposed to come out at noon i heard there were some issues with the uh, with the government printing office and then as it got later into the afternoon Zelensky was was in the house and um you know it, it, i don't think it made a lot of sense to release the report as the eyes of the country were all on zelensky and his speech i think they were probably waiting for a day when uh they, there could be more focus on their findings in this report managing the news cycle you know one of the biggest questions i think for whether to indict trump and of course we all know the news from earlier this week that they announced criminal referrals to the justice department with recommendations one of the biggest questions, I think, for whether to indict Trump is whether they can prove that he didn't really believe the election was stolen, right? If he did not really believe it, 
then fraud and insurrection become much easier to prove. Now, the committee gave us lots of evidence. The top advisors told Trump that it was all BS, to use Bill Barr's word. But he did have this cadre of advisors, Giuliani, John Eastman, some of the others, who kept egging him on. So his defenders on TV yesterday, I don't know if you saw any of this on cable, were saying he was getting conflicting advice, which means he could have plausibly believed what he was claiming, which would make it the big delusion more than the big lie. So from what you've seen of the report and following the committee for 18 months, like you just said, can they prove he knew better? So intent is important for um, for criminality, but it's not the only thing. Uh, it, it might be hard to prove intent with Donald Trump because he says so many different things at different times. And, and those who defend him, it is true he was getting conflicting advice. He was getting reasonable advice from people who were based in the world of facts. And Donald Trump preferred not to listen to them. And he preferred anybody who would tell him anything he wanted to hear, no matter how crazy or uh, non-factual it was. And you see this time and time again in the various transcripts where you know a lawyer from the Justice Department will go into Donald Trump and say, and Donald Trump will have sort of a list of things he's read on the internet or heard in memes or on talk radio or something. And he'll say, well, what about the people moving the boxes in Georgia? And the Justice Department official will say, sir, we checked into that. There was no fraud there. They were just moving the box. Those votes were all counted. And then he'll immediately pinball to another accusation. Well, what about them flipping votes via USB ports? Sir, we checked into that. There was no there there. And he would just keep looking for the next crazy theory that would mean that he actually won. Um, and you heard that with the call with Brad Rappersberger, too. I mean, find me 11,000 votes, the exact number I need. Like, right. it shouldn't be hard. Just find the votes that I need to win. That That's what he cared about. And yes, did he have right. advice? Although his defenders about? say about that. He believed that there were a lot of missing votes in Georgia, and he just needed uh, Raffensperger to find 11,000 of the votes that he thought were really out there. I'm just saying that's his side. No, no, I know. And, and Raffensperger is telling him repeatedly, sir, there's not there's not all these 11,000 fraudulent votes. There aren't all these votes out there. And but he doesn't want to hear it. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, I mean, I, I think I'm a, like a sane, calm logical review of the evidence shows just what I said, that Donald Trump was listening to the people he wanted to. But it is fair to point out there were people willing to do that, to walk in there and say, sir, we are, we're uncovering fraud, or we heard about Italy switching votes through thermometers or, or Chinese (laughs) ballots coming in from on a plane to Arizona. Like, these were things people really alleged. And, and and maybe some of them be- actually believe them. And, and I mean, there was like a congressional aide that drove out to an airport to inspect the plane that supposedly brought in the Chinese ballots. And I mean, there was just really bonkers stuff that people were running down yeah. trying to prove Donald Trump won a, an election he clearly lost. I think I missed the Italian thermometer story along yeah. the way. But oh, the- they had the Defense Department call the Italian consulate about it. I mean, that's how huh. high up the chain they went with some of this crazy stuff. I want to go on to the other big document dump on Trump. Many years of his tax returns released by the House Ways and Means Committee. I know it's some of your Times colleagues, not you, reporting directly on that. 
but as a congressional reporter, do you have a sense of what Democrats are pointing to as the most damning reveal or two here? If Trump resisted this release since he started running for president in the first place, you know, we're all looking at this to say, what was he hiding? Are there answers to that question? Yeah. So, um, you know, Chairman Neal and the House Ways and Means Committee fought for years to get to get these documents. And when they finally got them, um, they were able to complete a report uh, and, and now recommend legislation, which is on the House floor right now. Uh, one of the things they were able to determine was that for some reason, and I'm not exactly sure why, uh, Trump, Trump was not getting the annual presidential audit that the IRS is supposed to do, uh, as other presidents did. And they need to do more investigation to determine exactly why that was the case. But they they view that there was something amiss there. And I guess on that, um, I don't know if it's just what rich people do because they can, because there are all these loopholes in the tax codes where they can write off this and that. And even though they have a ton of money, they can legally pay no taxes or little tax. Uh, or if Trump is really engaging in some kind of tax fraud, like his company was just convicted of in New York. Right. I mean, you, you know, those are all those are all good questions. I mean, I would note that uh, that Mazers, the accounting firm earlier this year, said it could no longer stand behind the financial documents that had been provided to it by the Trump organization, the business. Um, so I think there is some question about um, whether the, you know, Trump and the Trump organization were fully honest with how they did their, uh, did their taxes. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's all a matter of investigation. And, and, uh, you know, I guess we'll see. So we're not getting any actual tax accountants calling in. Um, maybe they're all too busy filing people's <laughs> and end I of am, the year. Unfortunately, I'm not an expert in accounting. Right. But we have Carolyn Manhattan, who says she's in the process of looking what he's done, and she is a real estate investment banker. So, Carol, thank you so much for lending your voice to this segment. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you so much. Quite a fantastic conversation. So thank you, Mr. Lair. And I'm a real estate investment banker. And without naming names, I can share with you that as a banker, we are all very interested in now combing through the real estate tax, the, the IRS tax forms, because we believe that they will differ greatly from what we have in terms of presentations from the Trump organization to acquire loans. And as a result, that will be quite the problem for a lot of going forward, as well as potential um, issues to deal with legally. So um, traditionally, we say that the developers have three sets of books, one for the IRS, one for the bankers, and then the actual ones. And we think that this is no, no, no different. And let me just add one little segue here. Uh -huh. um, interestingly, yesterday, the Senator Gillibrand was talking about um, Santos and not being able to get rid of him because of you know, all the things that the New York Times found. But I really question look what they did to Al Franken. And I think that there is a way to deal with that. So I just wanted to put that out there. So thank you for listening. And um, again, great conversation. And bankers are now really racing to get access to all the information and do what we need to do. So thank you. Thank you, Carol. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. And when usually, usually when people bring up Gillibrand and Al Franken in the same breath, it's I'll never forgive her for her role in running Al Franken out of the Senate for not enough sexual harassment 
in, in some people's opinions. In this case, Luke, she's saying, well, they got Al Franken to resign over something that wasn't a crime. And so this guy, George Santos, who was just elected, new Republican from Tom Swasey's old district in Queens and Nassau County, who the Times revealed made up almost his entire resume, if the Times reporting is accurate. He didn't really go to college where he said, Baruch College. He didn't really work at Citibank and Goldman Sachs, like he said. Um, he didn't really have four employees killed in the Pulse nightclub massacre, like he said. At least they couldn't find any of the victims who were listed as employees of his. Uh, if, if he if he's made up so much of his resume, but it's not a crime, he could legally be seated anyway when Congress starts up in January. But are you as a congressional reporter hearing any reaction to that, especially from the Republican leadership? Like, can we really seat this guy if he's a total fraud? Well, that I mean, that's the key difference between Al Franken and, and, and Santos is um, uh, in Franken's case, his own party turned on him. And Correct. Um, if the Republicans are standing with Santos or at least not making an issue of it, there won't be the pressure to resign internally on, on the Hill. The people really, the people are responsive much more to their party's uh, leadership and, and the consensus of their party than they are to uh, say newspaper articles or even, or, or um, you know, or the media more generally. But um, and, and there's another question is whether we're in a post shame America and um, for the most part, I, I I do think Democrats can still be shamed, <laughs> shamed out of office. But it does seem like on the Republican side of the aisle, there there are fewer and fewer things that will cause Republicans to force out someone from public public office. You know, um, you you look at like stripping Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committees. The the Democrats had to do that ultimately. Yeah, a few years ago, the Republicans were willing to do it to Steve King after he said um, some racist things. Uh, but it, it does seem not like, anymore. Yes. Yeah, that's the point I'm trying to make. Thanks. The takeaway for the end of the year from Luke Broadwater, congressional reporter for The New York Times. We are now living in a post shame America, though maybe more on one side of the aisle than the other. Well, we are not ashamed at all for having had you on today. Good luck um, going through the January 6th committee full report when it gets released. And uh, happy holidays. Thanks for coming on today, Luke. Great. Thanks for having me. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.